set to speak about something else, and it was all prepared, and it was all ready, and uh, I'd read something during the week, and I was praying about this, and I thought, no, I'm going to leave what I've prepared for another time, probably this evening, and I want to share with you this teaching from these verses. Uh, most of it, or a lot of it, was inspired by the sermon that I read from John MacArthur. So, a lot of this is just plagiarism, so forgive me uh, for that. But I thought it was really helpful. The elders had asked me to preach on pastoring and pastoral work and so on. And I'd done two, and I was going to do a third, and this I thought, well, actually, this will re- replace the, the third. And I want us to think about what it is to belong to the church. Now, the boys and girls, you all belong to a family, and you have at least you have a mom and a dad, and you might have brothers or sisters, and sometimes it's really, really hard to get on with them. And sometimes you might say something like, you know, oh, I don't like you, or get really angry. And sometimes it's like that in the church as well. So we're going to look at how we get on with one another in the church and how we look after one another. But first of all, let me just say something about Paul's attitude to the church. He's writing to this church in Greece, in Thessalonica, and he says, you'll see the words up on the screen, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's attitude is one of great thankfulness for the church of Jesus Christ. It's not always one that we as Christians can have. Sometimes we get very frustrated and we get very angry with the church. Sometimes we get very disillusioned. Sometimes it's the organization. More often than not, although we may blame the organization, it tends to be people who maybe we're not getting on too well with. Well, Paul has a different attitude, and it's an attitude of great thankfulness for the church. And I have to say this, it's an attitude I share <clears throat> in my own understanding for the church here. I'm immensely thankful for the, the church here in St. Peter's. I'm thankful for God's church in Dundee and throughout Scotland, but this particular uh, congregation, I'm immensely thankful for it. Not like as Paul, Paul wasn't grateful because the Thessalonians were a big, wealthy, and powerful church. No, he was grateful because they were a Christian church who seek to follow Jesus. And if you read through this letter, I won't read through it all, but there's some tremendous things he says. For example, in chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, you are our hope. You are our glory. What is our hope? What is our glory? It's the church. Would you say that? Would you not be really super spiritual and say, my hope is Jesus, my glory is in God? To say my hope and my glory is the church, that sounds somewhat strange. Paul loved the church, though, and he was thankful for the church, and he saw God at work in the church. He was desperate to see the church grow and mature. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy. He said, we really, really long to be with you. We wanted to be with you. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. He urges them in chapter 4, verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. What he was doing, he was wanting to encourage and build up and help the church of Jesus Christ. He gets great joy in how the gospel has worked in their lives and in their communities. They are a tremendous witness. Chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. They're an example to all the believers. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, Timothy has brought good news about your faith and your love. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, this is our hope. You are our glory. You are our joy. So he's speaking of a church which is growing, which is maturing, which is developing, and it makes him really, really happy. Sometimes you will find that Paul is dealing with churches which are in real, real trouble, and he's really sad about them. But this church, he is he's rejoicing in what's happening amongst them. And I want to say that when a church is progressing and growing, when it's deepening and reaching out, it is a very, very joyful thing. Um, maybe you're not like this. Uh, when I get up on a Sunday morning, I don't think, oh no, I've got church again. And I know that sometimes that happens. Sometimes you think, do I have to go out at night? No, you don't. The moderator of the Church of Scotland this week, Albert Bogle, had, had a, uh, an interview with the press, which he said things that were true. You know, you don't don't force your children to go to church, he said, which wasn't true, because I would force them the same way I'd force my kids to eat. You know, it's kind of very important. But he said, you know, you can encounter God in Starbucks, or you can encounter God um, in your home, and so on. And all of that, of course, is true. But I think what, what I feel that it fed into was the kind of attitude was church is something you can take or leave, the church is the people of God. The church is the assembling of God's people together. Why does it really matter? Well, here's why it really matters. It's, it's something that brings you great joy. It's some way you connect with one another. God has given us the church that we can connect with Him as well. And I find myself, anyway, here, that I do give thanks to God for you all. And I'm just immensely grateful for what is going on in the church here just now. This is a really exciting time to be part of God's church in this congregation, in this city, and throughout Scotland. There's a lot of stuff that's going on, and we could spend a whole day just going around individual people and saying, look what's happening. What's happening up in Kirkton with the attic? What's happening with hot chocolate? What's happening amongst uh, the university students? What's happening in Charleston? What's happening in the area around this church? What's happening in our workplaces? So many different things, so many opportunities, and so much encouragement from God as He ministers and works among us by His Holy Spirit. But there's a burden, and it's a great burden. It says it here in 2 Corinthians 11:28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak. 
who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. Because you can be joyful and progressing and maturing, but you still have a lot of problems. Charles Morrison writes, the Christian church is a society of sinners. In fact, he says, it is the only society in the world in which membership is based upon the single qualification that the candidate shall be unworthy of membership. The church is full of problems because it's full of people who are sinners like me and like you. We're saved by grace, but we have still unredeemed human flesh constantly battling with sin. And where the church will grow and develop is is how we deal with that, how we have this joy and depth as we deal with sin and as we deal with immaturity and as we deal with the personality conflicts and difficulties that inevitably arise in any family. So, um, well, let me ask, I'm going to ask the boys and girls this. You don't have to answer this, but for any of you who've got a brother or sister, do you ever fight with them? Rosie, straight away, go on, confession time. You guys, do you ever fight? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah, you do as well. That's right. I mean, I don't know why it is. Your brothers and sisters, you know this, they are the most annoying people. Aren't your brothers the most annoying people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They really, you just, you know that, your sister just really irritates you. Um, I shouldn't say that. My sister is here, actually, this morning, and she's wonderful, and, but she's matured a lot since she was, she was very, very small. Um, but, you know, you think you're, I mean, your family, you know, you love them, but they really annoy you. They really bug you. Well, that's what Paul is speaking about in the Bible here. In the Christian church, as we grow to love one another more, and as we grow to know one another more, it's not always sweetness and light. We need help. We need um, that word we use, pastoring, where it's an idea of a shepherd looking after the flock. There are sheep and there are uh, shepherds. And so in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we read it. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. The idea there is the purpose for the elders of the church is not to control people. It's not to run an institution. It is to encourage and help all of us grow and develop in our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another. MacArthur says this, and he's talking of all of us. He says, you see, church is not showing up on Sunday morning, patting yourself on the back about how deeply religious you are. Being truly involved in the church goes far beyond the audience mentality and attendance. It gets all the way down into involving yourselves with five groups of people who are retarding the development of the church and therefore its ultimate impact. And he lists these five people, and that's where I've taken a lot of this from. And I would want to suggest to you, actually, that you will fit into one of these groups. I actually find myself fitting into four, if not five, of them. Because in the church, there's not like the people who are right at the top and who are the super saints, and then there's the kind of middle saints, and then there's the ones who are getting relegated, unless they're very fortunate. That's not how it works. We, are, we are all have to deal and face with this. So I'm going to go through these five things. And the first is this, the idol. The idol. Uh, again, let me ask the boys and girls, do you know what idol is, means? Do you know what that word means? What was that, Samuel? 
No, no, and oh, it's, okay, actually, you're right. Very smart. Is it a statue that people kind of worship and so on? That's an idol. Yeah, okay, you're right. That's spelled a slightly different way. Yeah, that's correct, but I'm thinking of another word. Let me, the word, go on, Fiona. When you're what? an idol. Okay, you guys are far too well taught. <laughs> yeah, it is. That is an idol, but I'm thinking of another word, lazy. Okay, laziness. Do you know what laziness is? I'm sure you... When you don't do things, that's right. When you can't be bothered. When you're too lazy. When there's, for example, there's dishes to be done, you can't be bothered. You get out of your bed in the morning, you can't be bothered. There's homework to be done, you can't be bothered. That's what laziness is. Well, there's a, a lazy type of person, an idle person, what MacArthur calls a wayward person or a wandering person. And you get that in the church. And boys and girls, sometimes you might think, well, everyone's here to do things for me. But there's actually things that you can do as well. You can help tidy up. You can help welcome people at the door. You can be involved in the church. And we need in the church everyone to be together. But sometimes there are Christians who are lazy, who are undisciplined. The word here carries this idea of uh, falling behind, of being apathetic, not really playing your part. We warn, the, we warn you, brothers, we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. The idea is of lazy, busybodies who don't work and expect everyone else to do the work for them. It's the opposite of someone who says, I'm on board. I'm participating, I'm going to use my gifts. These are people who tend to sit on the sidelines and are often very, very critical. It's lovely when someone comes into church and they're brand new and they, they've, the first thing they can say, what can I do to help? How can I help? You know that that person, whatever else, they're probably going to make it. It's the person who comes in and maybe comes to hear and to watch and to criticize. I remember uh, a church I went to once, and there was a senior member of that church who sat at the back and sat kind of like this, really relaxed and casual, looking over everyone, not saying anything, but when the service was over, get up and walk out. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, he's just an oddbot. He's just a kind of eccentric person. But the more I think about it, the more I realized that what he was doing was very superior and sinful. He was just sitting, looking at everyone else, seeing how they behaved. He was listening to the sermon. He himself would, would have been able to preach a very, very good sermon. And he was saying, well, that was good and that was bad. And that was and just, he never really got involved in the work of the church. And there are those of us who are like that. We, we come along to a church service. We listen to some degree, but we don't get involved. We don't get our hands dirty. And Paul says, how do we deal with this as a church? He says, we warn, we admonish. You go to those who are on the fringes, who are hanging around doing nothing, and you warn them. One man says, it's the idea of coming to someone who's following a path that ultimately ends in serious consequences and instructing them about the inevitability of those consequences. Now, let's be really careful here. This is not judgmentalism. This is not coming from a place of superiority and condemning people. 
It is coming alongside and it is warning people, like Paul in Acts 20 and verse 28, where he says, sorry, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. See, if you love your family, you will tell them, you will warn them. So if you're an older child here and you've got a younger child, uh, a younger brother or younger sister, and they're going sticking their finger in a plug, you'll warn them it's not a good thing to do. And if you love your brothers and sisters in the Christian church, then you will warn them of what they're doing that's wrong. And you really need to get close to people. You can't do that from a distance. You can't do that. I I can't really do that from here. It would be an absolute cowardice on my part to see something in one of you and then to use my position as a teacher of God's Word to stand up and have a go at you from the pulpit. If you ever think I'm doing that, then please speak to me because it would be entirely wrong on my part to do that. That doesn't mean to say that sometimes you hear God's Word and you go, whoa, that's speaking directly to me because that's God speaking through His Word. But a preacher should never use a pulpit as a kind of coward's way of having a go at people. And if you are aware of someone and you see that what they're doing is wrong and is harmful to them and to other people, you can't just go and yell at them. You can't just write them a note. You have to go alongside them. That's what he's saying here. You admonish them. MacArthur says this, if we're going to have a more powerful church to impact the world, it isn't a question of how clever we are. It's a question of how willing we are to come alongside believers who are wayward and lovingly bring them into line. Then the power of God begins to flow. Then the church begins to cut a swathe through the world. This is a necessary confrontation. Church isn't coming and sitting and staring at the back of somebody's head. That's not it. Don't commend yourself for being here. Church is being involved in the lives of people, the troublesome people. We have to go alongside the ones that are on the outside, testing the edges, living on the fringe, going day to day in their waywardness. We've got to pull them in. We do it out of love because we understand the consequences. So if you're a Christian, you're here, and you feel a little bit frustrated at some of your fellow Christians because they're not pulling their weight, because they're drifting away, don't just in your own spirit criticize and condemn them, but try and get alongside and try and provoke and try and help and try and encourage. Hebrews 11 tells us, Hebrews 10 rather tells us that we are to provoke one another to love and to good works. And you never provoke by nagging, but you provoke by meeting together, by coming alongside, by sharing. There's a second group, and he calls them the timid, the timid, people who worry. Let's think. Let me ask the boys and girls again. Is there anything that you would worry about? Or what do you think someone might worry about? Because I, I worry about a lot of things. But some of them I've had to stop worrying about. I used to worry about Dundee Football Club losing games. But I've stopped worrying about that because otherwise life would be such a worry. Um, anything you might worry about. You don't worry. None of you worry. That's great. Some people worry about whether they're going to get food. 
Some people worry about how they're going to get on at school. Some people worry about their friends. But in the church, there are people who are timid, or as MacArthur calls them, the worriers. And they're a group of people who are motivated by fear. They're the kind of people who say, we've never done it this way before. And so they're scared. They have no sense of adventure. They hate change. They love tradition. They fear the unknown. They want no risk. They want everything to be safe. And they worry about everything. All the issues of life are more than they can bear. They're usually sad, discouraged, sometimes in despair, often depressed and defeated. MacArthur says they carry none of the zeal, the joy, the thrill, the exuberance that adventure brings. And this word that is used here for timid or for people who worry is a word that is combined of two Greek words, one meaning soul and the other meaning small. And he says these people are small-souled. Now, there's another word where you add big and soul, great-souled. And small-souled was a, a, an idea within the Greek language. The great-souled person is the person who takes great risk because there's great principle and great truth at stake. It's the person of courage, the person of boldness, the person who puts their life on the line for the nobleness of the cause. The person who has a sense of adventure, who loves the challenge, who seeks the competition, who loves the battle because he tastes the victory. The person who has a vision, who's not afraid of persecution, who achieves great things because he sees great things. Paul says, yes, there are people like that, but there are also those of us, and I suspect we are more numerous, who are not great-souled, but we are small-souled. We hate change. We love tradition. We want to always do things the same way. We fear the unknown. We worry about everything. William Hardy says this, they see the manure pile in every meadow. That's what they're looking for. And it's so easy to be like that. There's a default position that we go to, isn't there? And the default position is, let's go safe. So let's take, for example, um, the praise band and so on. We can't change anything with that because... If we do, we don't, we don't know this. We don't, well, actually, if you're going to change, you're going to do things, you know, like today, have a flute for the first time. Well, that's really nice, and it's great. It involves a bit of a risk because you haven't done it before. could be a complete disaster. Thankfully, it wasn't, and it's not going to be. But sometimes you do things, and they could be complete disasters. People who are small-souled lack courage, don't want to do anything that hasn't been done before only want to walk in a path that someone has already paved, only want to repeat an act that has already been done, want a risk-free life with absolute security. And the trouble is that within the church, that means that we don't move out, we don't take challenges, we don't strike out in new ministries. We were praying for the attic, and I do want to mention it. There's other things I could mention as well. I, I want to commend those who lead the attic for changing and going to work in Kirkton. That was, in one sense, a completely ridiculous idea. You have to be absolutely convicted it's what God wants you to do. It was enormous risk. It could destroy the whole thing. And yet, it's those kinds of things that God blesses. Not people who are foolish and who don't think about it, but people who are big-souled, who see big vision. People who fear persecution don't like to communicate Christ. People who are afraid of opposition are usually sad, all the time worried, very often 
discouraged. The church is being persecuted and they're afraid. Economic circumstances are bad and they are afraid. They're crushed. They're the guys with the stop sign all the time. Stop, stop, stop. We're going too fast. I want to get off. Paul says, what do you do with these people? Same thing again. Encourage the timid. Encourage the warriors. And it's a word that means comfort, console, strengthen, reassure, refresh, soothe. Don't nag. Don't yell at them. Don't stick the boot into them because they don't see the vision that you see. You've got to disciple these people. And the only way that you can disciple is with relationship. And that's why I think the pastoral groups that we have are so important. Not because they're a method or a strategy, but because they are relational. In chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul says this, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. You've got a very little child and that very little child is taking their food and throwing it all over the place. The mother might be a bit exasperated and yell at them, yeah, perhaps. But you'll find that what most mothers will do is will take that child and will be patient with that child and will explain over and over again that the purpose of the food is to go into the mouth and that there's a purpose for that and it's going to come out the other end and that has to be cleaned up as well and you've got to be really, really patient with a baby. You've got to be patient with a child and we have to be patient with one another. We have to gently encourage through prayer and fellowship and the gospel and the word And that barrier of the warriors comes out of the way, not by, as I say, having a go, but by showing people the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. Okay, here's the third group, the weak. Weak, boys and girls, what does that mean? What does weak mean? Who knows? You said someone was weak. Not strong, not, you know, like you, muscles. Not really strong, physically strong. But there's other kinds of weakness as well. Sometimes there are people who are emotionally weak or people who are, are mentally weak. And here he's talking about people who are spiritually weak. And I think two categories, especially. Those who keep falling into sin. Those who are badly disciplined and uh, who are morally weak. They find it really difficult to do God's will. They keep falling into the same sins over and over again. And he says these people retard the growth and the development of the church. And I think there are those as well who are weak in a sense of back to the worrying, but uh, weak in terms of faith and in terms of their understanding of the scriptures. And what are we to do? Galatians 6 verse 1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. And you see the wonderful, see the pattern again. Paul says to the Thessalonians, there are those amongst you and you'll be one of them and you may go through this, who who are weak, who are struggling with sin in their own lives and who are struggling with their lack of understanding of God's Word. And instead of throwing them out, instead of condemning them from a distance, instead of gossiping about them, instead of nagging them, what you've got to do is you've got to come alongside them. You've got to get to know them. You've got to understand where they are coming from. Yes, you do have to warn them. 
But you have to make sure that you're not just casting them out. When he says, help the weak, that's what we have to do. We have to come and we have to help, not to destroy. The next lot are patience. We have to be patient. Okay, let me ask the boys and girls again. What's patience? Apart from a card game, which none of you will know how to play. What is patience? Samuel. Waiting for something to happen. That is really, really good. Give you an example of, of impatience. Impatience is when you're waiting for your food and you say, I want my food and I want it now. Give me it now. That's impatience. Impatience is when we're always looking for something very, very quickly, very, very immediately. And in the church, well, maybe here he's speaking about people who, they're foot draggers. I don't know, do you ever go for a walk with your parents? Ever do a walk? You know, these dreadful parents days, do you, where you, have to, where you have to go on a family outing and you have to walk? Yeah? Well, do you know when you go for a walk and you've got a big family? It's a real pain when your kid brother is always dragging along at the end and ends up having to be carried or something. Well, here he's speaking about people as the church is marching on. They're the ones who are dragging at the back. They're the foot draggers. They're going at the wrong speed. They never catch up. You keep teaching them. You keep training them. You keep discipling them. You pour all this energy into them. And every time you look around to see how close they are, they've fallen back yet again. Everything distracts them. They find it really easy to be distracted. They have a great difficulty concentrating, a great difficulty focusing. And in the church, you find that you spend a lot of your energy and time with people like this. They don't move, they grow, and they don't grow at a pace that would be considered normal. And that can be so frustrating. And what does Paul say to the church? He says, you be patient with everybody. And he's particularly meaning, be patient with those who make you frustrated. Be patient with those who irritate you and who know you. How patient? As patient as God. How how good is that? How often should we forgive? 70 times 7. Work out how many that is. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. Timothy's told, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And it it is um, that idea just of, you don't just teach the Bible and say, that's it. We have to keep going again and we have to keep learning again. Why? Because you and I are thick, spiritually speaking. It takes a lot for God to get this into us and we must never be arrogant and think and condemn other people because they seem to be slow on the uptake. Seem to to be slow in learning the lessons. Be patient. And again, it's getting alongside people. And then the last one is don't pay back the wicked. Let me again ask the boys and girls, what should you do if someone does something bad to you? What would you do? What should you do if someone does something bad to you? Punch them back. That's the answer I was looking for. Punch them back. Okay, see, we need to talk later, but (laughs) there is actually no, if someone does something bad to you, 
then this is a really hard thing. It says that we've not to pay them back. Make sure no one pays back the wicked. Now, wait a minute. You're saying this is the church. Who says there's wicked in the church? Yes, there is. I am and you are. We do wicked things. There are people in the church who do things that are wrong, and you and I are very likely to be one of them. The word that's used, kakos, is a word of baseness and meanness and wickedness. The worst treatment that we can face, the most painful treatment, is being badly treated by our Christian brothers and sisters. Not those outside, but those inside. That's where the deepest pain is, and that's where our Christian faith has to operate at a real level. That people in the church who gossip, who are commit sexual sin, who are angry, who shut people out, who are snobbish, or whatever reason, we have to deal with it. And how do we deal with it? We don't retaliate. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how do we treat those who do evil to us, those who hurt us, those who wound us, particularly within the fellowship of the church? We do them good. They've never invited us for a meal. We invite them. They've never said hello to us. We go out of our way to welcome them. They didn't visit us when we were sick. They didn't come to us when our mother died or whatever. When they experience these things, we go to them. We come alongside. We treat those who do evil to us. We do not excuse the evil, but we do not exclude the evildoers. Sometimes a situation will be so bad that it goes beyond you and it needs to involve the whole church, and that's where church discipline comes in. But first of all, there has to be, again, this coming alongside. So, let me finish with this. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. By the way, if you had a father who did not encourage you, who did not comfort you and did not urge you, do not judge God by that. And if you are a father, do not think that you are disciplining your children if you do not encourage them and if you do not comfort them. And that's what it is to be in the church here. We are to encourage and we are to comfort and to, to spur on one another. We are not to divide into groups, which is uh, groups along of, these are people who I like and people who agree with me and people who belong to, to my particular network. We are to deliberately make a point of getting to know our brothers and sisters who are different from us, getting to know our brothers and sisters who may annoy us and who may hurt us and who may wound us and who we may hurt and we may wound. And that is the purpose of why we, we do the, the fellowship groups or the pastoral groups. It is not to have an, yet another meeting in the church. We don't do it to have some kind of strategy and formula and institution within an institution. It's because we need to care for one another and build one another up. You can't do that 
you have a congregation of a couple of hundred people and you're together on a Sunday morning and perhaps on a Sunday evening and you hang around. I mean, it's great that people hang around here afterwards for uh, half an hour, an hour. I mean, I always thought it's absurd going to church that people go to church and then wish out the door and hardly ever speak to anyone. To me, it's great that we do that, but it's never, never enough. Who talks to you about Jesus? Who talks to you? Who, Who in this fellowship is able to come alongside you and tell you not where you're right, but where you're wrong when you do something that is wrong. Someone who loves you enough to be able to do that. It's great if you've got friends who do that, not enemies who want to boot you and who want to destroy you and who want to attack you and justify themselves, but friends, but sisters, but brothers. Now, you may have another way to do that. Maybe you don't need to belong to a a pastoral group. Maybe you know loads of people. Maybe you're just getting on fine. But most of us do. And in a church, it's great. And it's been great having the groups move to a weekly basis because sometimes you can't make it. And so uh, at least you're getting every fortnight. But you're getting to know people and getting to meet people and getting to share with people and being able to do all of these things, being patient with people, encouraging the warriors, helping the weak, All of those things are absolutely vital. And I think that's what's great about the church. I don't like it when somebody confronts me. I guess I would like it if everyone agreed with everything that I said or did, except they'd be lying, and it wouldn't be helpful. I do, however, have to say that growth comes out of those who love you enough to take time to get to know you and to share with you and to encourage you even when they see your faults. You know, the best friends you have are the ones who see your faults and who don't condemn you or reject you because of them. The worst friends you will ever have are the people who think you're perfect because very soon they will discover that you're not and then they'll think you're the devil. And it just, they don't, everyone's got to fit into their perfect wee world. And if you don't fit in, you're out. Whereas in the church, we're saying we're all imperfect. We're all imperfect. But you know, it is a glorious and wonderful organization and body to belong to. The pastoral groups are about people. And we need to be involved with people, with all their mess. That's what the church is about. MacArthur says this, and with this I do finish. A growing flock is characterized by movement in faith, love, purity, towards the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's a growing church. That growth is impeded by the wayward and the worried and the weak and the wearisome and the wicked. And if the church is going to grow, it isn't going to grow because somebody figures out some strategy to go around the problem. It's going to grow because the shepherds and the sheep come together in intimate relationships in which they admonish the wayward, encourage the worried, hold up the weak, are long-suffering with the wearisome, and render loving goodness to the wicked. And as a church takes that shape and that form, it will be a growing and powerful church. Amen. May God bless His Word.